It's a real privilege to look out at each one of you and to open up the word with you this morning. This morning we're taking on the very next psalm. I can't remember if this is the last week or next week's the last week where we're doing summer psalms. But Psalm 34 is the, uh, is the next psalm uh, in our series and it's what we're looking at this morning. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. And really, its central aim is uh, to call God's people into celebration of God's goodness to them. That's what a hymn of thanksgiving does. And in a lot of ways, it's, it's meant to move us into joy. It's meant to call us into celebrating the joy that we have as God's people. But one thing I want to call your attention to as, uh, as we get into it is just notice when I read it, notice the amount of times it mentions fear. Uh, this psalm is dealing with an interaction of the heart that, that we are very familiar with, I think. And it's the interaction between the joys that we pursue and the fears that we have. You know, some of our best art has been about the interplay of the joys and fears in the human heart. It's ubiquitous to the human experience. Some of our greatest novels center around that issue. A couple movies that came out a couple weeks ago. That is a central issue for both of them. Let's see what the psalm has to say. This is Psalm 34. I'll read all all 22 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes us boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and and loves many days that he may see, see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And saves a crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. And the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. Thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you be among us working through your Holy Spirit? 
giving us the strength to hear, the courage to hear. I pray that you would help us to be present. Uh, I pray you would show us Jesus, help us to see Jesus. And would you help me, your servant, to, to love these friends well and to honor you with the words that I say. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's the fall. Our, families, our, our family is uh, in the same place as many of yours. We're kind of staring down the barrel of the fall. And it had me thinking this past week about who some of my favorite teachers were as I was growing up. And that's a, just so you know, that's a bit of a dangerous question for me because my mother was a high school chemistry teacher. And not only, she was actually my high school chemistry teacher. Um, but one of my very favorite, uh, one of my one of, one of my very favorite teachers was my high school physics teacher. Uh, she was wonderful, and, uh, and, and I think what set her apart was not just that she knew her subject really, really well, but it's that she truly loved her subject. Like, she, she moved with this awe, this, this fascination about the way things worked in the world, and you could, you could just feel that. She wasn't when you went into her classroom, she wasn't just trying to teach you things. She was trying to, 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 to get you to learn to celebrate them. And I give you that because in a lot of ways, that's exactly what David's doing here. Like some of the best teachers, some, I'm sure you've had some of your own. But David is doing two things. He is actually calling us into celebration with him. And he's calling us to learn from him. Celebrate with him, learn from him. Those are the two points that I'm going to give you uh, today. Uh, first, celebrate with me. Th- this uh, first passage, first half of the psalm or so, is really a call to celebrate something with him. So what I want to do is talk about what he's celebrating and why celebration is important. Okay, First, what he's celebrating. This psalm is really, uh, this is a fun one because... Uh, unlike most psalms, it actually gives us a, a, a reference marker for the, the story that precipitated this particular prayer being written. You see it in the, in the inscription at the beginning of the psalm, and that kind of helps us fill out our understanding of the psalm a little bit. It comes from a story in David's life. You can see it in 1 Samuel 21, and uh, it, this is well before David actually became king. He's really still a young man at this point, um, but he's not a boy anymore. He, he, um, he is uh, in, a, in a very dangerous place when this story comes along because uh, he is, Saul, the current king of Israel, is very afraid of David. See, Saul knows that the spirit has departed from him and now rests on David. And David is supposed to be uh, the next king of Israel. So David represents this, th- this uh, threat to uh, Saul's continued rule. And so David is on the run with a king that's hunting him down. And you get a sense for just the desperation that David feels because he runs out of uh, out away from one king and right into the hands of another king. He moves into Philistine territory and goes to one of their greatest cities. And not only that, but he's also carrying the sword of Goliath with him, one of the greatest Philistines ever that David actually killed. He's carrying that sword with him. And, uh, and, and he had also been at war very recently with the Philistines, so much so that people had written a song about him uh, and how many Philistines that he had killed on the battlefield. And so David goes into this city 
just hoping that there is a chance that he could find refuge there and hoping that there is a chance that they wouldn't recognize him for who he is. And, uh, and that doesn't work out for him at all. In fact, they immediately identify him. They tell the king, hey, isn't this David the one who people are singing about? David overhears this, realizes that they're on to him. And so he does something really clever at that point. He begins to act like a crazy man, okay? So, so what he does is he begins to act weird. He speaks weirdly like, uh, like, like he's... Uh, like he's crazy. He begins to make marks on their city gate, which is a kind of a sacred place where the elders gather and talk. And the verse says that uh, he, he actually lets spittle run over his beard. Okay, so he, he does everything to try and feign uh, insanity. And the king says something really funny at this point. He says, do I lack crazy people in my home already? So much so that you felt the need to bring him here? And he just lets him go. And so it's this remarkable story that you have of David uh, being on the run from two different kings who are seeking his death, and he gets away scot-free, just totally clean. And then he goes from there, he goes to this place called the Cave of Adullam, and he begins to hide out, and people begin to gather to him. But that's what he's celebrating. What is he? He's celebrating that God is a rescuing God. That God rescues his people. That's what he's celebrating. But the more important question here and, and, uh, that I think presses in on us is why is celebration so important? Uh, more specifically, why does David take this individual story of God's rescue and make it something that's corporate to be shared by the people around him? Why does the individual become corporate? Well, first it has to do with who is with him. See, David is alone through this whole story. As far as you can tell, David's completely alone. And the psalm even talks about just how, how, how afraid that he was in his solitude. But when he goes down to this cave at, at Adullam, people began to gather with him. And it's this beautiful verse. It says, everyone who is in distress... Everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered up to him. It said he became captain over them, and there were with him about 400 people. So he attracted the disenfranchised. He attracted the, the marginalized to him. They began to gather to him. And so in one sense, David is relieved that he's not alone anymore. But in another sense, he has a real unique leadership challenge in front of him because he now has the responsibility of leading a crowd of people, all of whom are in a difficult place. They're all struggling in some way. They're bitter in soul. And so what does he do? He is calling these people up to, to celebrate something, to celebrate who they are in God, to celebrate who God is and what he has done. And it's like it's telling us that there, this is treatment for the soul in distress. This is, this is treatment for the bitter soul. This, it, because it tells us that even in the most desperate places, that we are still a people of hope. That, that hope is not unreasonable for God's people. That God moves and he will move again on behalf of of his people. So who is with him? It's important. He felt the need to call them into celebrating something good. 
But it's also important because of what he wants for them. Listen, David knows that no joy is complete until that joy is shared. Uh, That's what David is aiming at in verse 3 when he says, Magnify the Lord with me. Let us celebrate his name together. In Philippians 2, Paul says, some, Paul says, this is really interesting. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, by sharing, having the same love. The idea here is that, um, is that our joy becomes complete by sharing what we're enjoying with each other. That's really the testimony of the Bible uh, is unanimous on this point. It's constantly telling us that a shared joy is far superior It's far more wonderful to experience than individual joy. And we know this. It really defines a lot of what we do. Just much of what we do is on this point. Um, Like, think about why we take trips together. Like, like we take trips with people. Uh, We take vacations in order to meet people in a certain place. Like, we're looking to share joy with each other. One of my favorites is when, like, let's say you're out to dinner with somebody and they're eating something that's just truly delicious. Like, who has said no when somebody said, give me your fork, you've got to try this? Like, what's going on? They're trying to share, they're trying to share joy. And that's certainly the idea behind David when he says, taste and see Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's important. He said, taste. You know, David could have said, believe that the Lord is good. Like, that's really what he wants them to do. He's trying to call them to trust that the Lord is good. But actually, he says, taste. Like, he's trying to to, uh, get a reluctant eater to sample something. Taste it, and you will see that he is good. Our family has borrowed this trend, this tradition from, from uh, I think, a couple of families in this room, actually, and we're really thankful for it. But over the past uh, several months, we've begun having a weekly uh, pizza and movie night. But the pizza part of this is that we, uh, we buy some dough and we kind of make our own individual pizzas, all right? It's real simple. You can get dough in different places, but we all have our own little piece of dough. We all work it, and then we have these toppings, and everybody in the family gets to, like, make their own pizza, okay? And, and I've always thought it was really interesting. It's like this combination of an individual and shared experience, like... We're making our own pizza the way that we want it, but we're all kind of doing the same thing, and then we watch something together. It's, I mean, it's fun. Thank you. Whoever suggested that to us, thank you. You can have it if you're interested in something like that. But over the last uh, several weeks, one of the things I've noticed is that one of my sons decided that, the, that when it comes to pizza, less is more. Okay, so he has dough, and then he just throws a bunch of cheese on top. Like, that's his move. Uh, he doesn't want any toppings, any sauce. It's just cheese. And we kind of get that, because who doesn't, like, love cheesy bread? You know, <laughs> like, who doesn't love that? But I am of the persuasion that uh, toppings are far superior. Like, that is far superior than no toppings. And so what I've done, when I can get away with it, is I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, like, without him looking, trying to sneak, like, a pepperoni right into the middle of his cheesy bread. At one, one time, uh, we slid the pizza in the oven, and I went, I, like, circled back around five minutes later and, like, opened it up and put a piece of pepperoni on it. A couple of weeks ago, I put a cashew nut on the, just to be silly. 
But what am I doing? I'm trying to get him to taste and see, right? Just taste it. Just taste it and you will see. David's saying, just taste and you will see. It's like this visceral experience that he's calling you to. It's not just believing, it is knowing. It's like a conviction of the heart, knowing that the Lord is good. Let me ask you, have you tasted and have you seen that the Lord is good? Is this like a visceral experience for you? Do you know, is it a conviction of the heart that God is good? And not just is he good, but is he good to you? I heard one pastor put it this way. He said, I can tell you that honey is sweet. And I can tell you about my own experience with honey. I can tell you about the time when I put honey on a biscuit and it was like tasting heaven itself. And we could even bring in one of my old high school teachers and she could explain to you like the molecular structure of honey and how it interacts with our taste buds and and why it tastes so wonderful. But until you have tasted honey for yourself, you will only have secondhand knowledge that it is truly good. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Do you know deep in your heart? And can you trust it? Listen, the hard truth is that, and this is hard, but often the places where we experience firsthand, experiential, visceral knowledge of the goodness of God to us is in places similar to where David was when he was learning this. Like David was on the run, he was desperate, he was afraid. That's where God was teaching him about God's goodness to him. Like those are the places where we develop a powerful awareness of our own neediness. That's when our eyes are most open to see, where we don't just learn, but we truly experience the wideness of God's mercies. And while we don't really desire that for ourselves or for each other, that's usually the place where we learn what wisdom looks like. And and that's, that's why it makes complete sense that David moves from calling us into celebrating something with him to beginning to teach us what wisdom in following God in this world actually looks like. So he moves in this passage from celebrate something with me to now learn from me. And really the, 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 the second half of the psalm has to do with teaching us what fear of the Lord is and what fear of the Lord looks like. Verse 11, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That's the second invitation, to learn from him the fear of the Lord. He's actually proposing this as a kind of governing mechanism for how we should understand our our own lives, what our lives should look like in the world. Now, now what does that mean? What does fear of the Lord mean? Um, In my experience uh, with several, you might not, You might not have any problems with that phrase. I have seen uh, a number of people become really troubled by that phrase. Like it can be a hard 
kind of confusing phrase, almost like it teaches that God is whimsical and that we have to be afraid of him at all times. But remember, we just celebrated God's constant goodness and steadfast love to his people. And now he's calling us into fear of the Lord. And, and, he, and David kind of teaches it to us by contrasting it with fear. There are really two different kinds of fear in this passage. One of these fears leads to more fears, like aggrandizing fear. And the other one of these fears is fear of the Lord, which, which drives out fear. That's the way he's kind of contrasting those two. Look at verse 10. He's proposing the fear of the Lord as, as the source of our... He's using young lions as an example. This is verse 10. They suffer want and hunger. Young lions are powerful. Uh, predators are often seen as uh, somebody, something we need to be protected from in the Psalms. Um, he says, uh, young lions are powerful. They take what they want, but they're driven by their hunger. Uh, their whole lives are oriented towards satisfying their hunger. And they fear being, able to, uh, being unable to satisfy their hunger. And, and much of our search, search for joy, this is what David's saying, much of our search for joy and our contention with our fears can be just like those young lions that were chasing our hunger, whether it's security or comfort or wealth or, uh, or friends or a good reputation. Like we can spend our lives giving ourselves to these things and being afraid when we don't have them or being afraid of losing them. That's, that's, the, that's the way fear aggrandizes in our hearts. And he said, instead... We live our lives in fear of the Lord. Um, David uh, proposes that, which, which fear of the Lord is that reverent awe and respect that comes from knowing both the extent of God's power, that he is truly powerful, and the wonder and the peace that he cares for you. It's both of those things. That's what fear of the Lord is. It's reverence and awe. Charles Spurgeon, hey, no sermon's complete without a Spurgeon quote, right? Okay, here you go. I heard an amen over here. Uh, but he puts it this way. And, and, and when I read this to you, just notice the contrast or notice how he mentions both, um, <clears throat> both peace and, uh, and reverence, okay? Starts with reverence. He says, pay to him humble childlike reverence. Walk in his laws, have respect to his will, tremble to offend him, Hasten to serve him. He's talking about reverence in the obedient life. Like our our obedience comes out of a a reverent fear of the Lord. And then he says this. He says, fear not the wrath of men. You don't have to be afraid of them. Neither be tempted to sin through the virulence of their threats. He's talking about peace. And not being driven driven into further sin because we feel so much unrest. And then he says this. Fear God. And nothing else. And what he's telling us is that if you fear God, you don't have to be afraid. If you fear God, you don't have to be afraid. If you fear God, you don't have to be afraid. And the opposite is also true. That if you don't fear God, then we'll be prone to fearing anything. And I'll just tell you, this, this is one of the things that it has just worked in, on my heart all week long as I've stared at this passage, is that so many of my fears are rooted in, in the 
the ways I lack in fearing the Lord. Because either I don't trust him or because I, you know, like I fear what somebody says or I fear what somebody did or the ways my reputation's being attacked or, or secure it, like I feel lack of security. I can fear all those things because in some ways my own heart lacks a fear of the Lord. That's what David is talking about here. He's calling us to a, a fear of the Lord that's to such an extent that we don't have to be afraid of anything else. He's the the source of our peace. And then he goes on to talk about the source of our understanding, that this fear of the Lord uh, actually leads us in understanding the truth of what the good life actually looks like. Verse 12 could be paraphrased to being about, you know, like who doesn't want a good life, okay? Like that's true. And, uh, And so that's what he's talking about, our understanding of the good life. Uh, Our lives, the content of our lives, the things that we do, the way that we talk, what we enjoy, what we avoid, all of that uh, displays what we believe. It shows our heart, and the fear of the Lord means doing what is right. And so he's, he's calling us into an ethical lifestyle, both in, uh, in what we say, how we use our tongue, and what we pursue with our lives. Verse 13, keep, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. And then uh, what we pursue, we pursue peace. Uh, verse 14, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The, these are the type of people God's people are supposed to be. And that's what he's calling us to. Jesus is actually riffing on that verse in Psalm, or, or, sorry, in Matthew 5, when he's in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. These are the people that we're supposed to, we're supposed to be people who bring peace into the world, into our families, into our neighborhoods, into our friends' lives, and even into our enemies' lives. We're supposed to pray for the peace of our city, is what, is what God calls us to do. And I think when you stare at this, it actually leads to two difficulties. It, because if this is what the good life is, there, there are at least two challenges here that I can think of. There are probably more. But the first is that it can leave us feeling incredibly vulnerable. Like, who will protect me as I seek to lead this good life that God calls us to? Like, if I refrain from returning evil with evil, who is going to protect me? And the second problem is this, is that the more we try to live this way, the more we feel far away from actually achieving it. Like, it's incredibly hard. And so the rest of this psalm is actually answering both of these concerns. Because remember, it is telling us that God is a rescuing God. And it spends a long time talking. Much of the ink of this psalm is detailing God's attentive care to us as the source of our hope. It tells us that God sees and God hears. That the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. And when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. And his special attention is given to those who are vulnerable. That the Lord is near to the, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves, he rescues the crushed in spirit. 
It's important to note that the Apostle Peter quotes these verses to a church full of suffering, persecuted Christians when he says, don't return evil for evil. The Lord is nearer to you than you know. You know what's interesting to me? When you read 1 Samuel 21, you really, you, and you see that, that David wrote not just this psalm, but two psalms, actually, out of that story. Psalm 56 as well. But you actually don't see God, at, God, God isn't even mentioned in that narrative. It's all David did this, and David did that, and then David became afraid, and he overheard this, so he responded this way, and then he ran. Like, God's not even mentioned. But this psalm tells us that David knows that there's no way he escapes if God doesn't rescue him. And so he writes a psalm that proclaims God's good protection, God's constant refuge for his people. His attentive care as the source of our hope. God rescues us, not just from those around us, but he also rescues us from ourselves. And as you go down, as you inch down toward the end of the, toward the end of the psalm, you actually see the kind of rescue that God intends. As you go forward, it's really a sobering verse. I think 19 and 20 are really sobering vo- verses, but they're laced with hope. And I'm going to close on this point. It says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. That's sobering. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. And then it says this, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Now that, that kind of, that could have sounded curious. When I was reading through that, did you hear that verse and think, what in the world is that, like, what does that have to do with what he's talking about? It's kind of a curious insertion. Uh, if you were one of the Israelites around David, you know, those who are bitter in soul and in distress, and you first heard David sing this, you might have thought that David was talking about himself, that he escaped out of, uh, out of, from the king of Gath, and, uh, and his limbs were all intact, okay? Um, but you most likely would have been thinking about the Passover lamb. Uh, the sacrifice that was offered right before God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. Twice, God says to them, eat the Passover lamb, don't break any of its bones, But the Apostle John says that verse is actually talking about someone else. That it was actually talking about someone else and another sacrifice that was offered. A new Passover lamb. It is really hard. I think it just takes courage to read John 19 and the story of of Jesus' crucifixion. I mean, it's brutal when you read it. And you read it all the way through, and it, it talks about all that he endured. And then it says he breathed his last and he gave up his spirit. It's this idea that he was even in control of his own death. And then people, that, and this was customary at the time, it would often hasten death. The people would come out to the cross and actually break the legs of the people that were on the cross in order to hasten their death, to be able to take them down off the cross before the Sabbath. And when they came to Jesus, what did they find? They found that he was already dead. And that they didn't need to break his legs. And John says, this took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. 
quoted this psalm. And he's telling us that when David wrote those words, that God was speaking to his people about a promised final and complete rescue given to God's people in Jesus Christ. He doesn't just rescue us from a broken world, but he rescues us from our sin. And so if you're ever wondering if God is good to you, and I understand that wondering, but I would urge you to look at Jesus, the man of sorrows, afflicted by sinful men. He knows what it means to draw near to the brokenhearted. And if you are ever wondering if you have reason to celebrate, then I would urge you to look at Jesus, his sacrifice that secures your rescue. He delivers you from your sin and redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. O you who draw near to the brokenhearted, O you who saves the crushed in spirit, will you uphold our fainting spirits and help us to celebrate with joy who you are and what you have done. Jesus, our King, the one who went before us, who secures us and protects us, I pray you would be with us now working in our hearts, showing us yourself, building us in faith, and leading us in the fear of the Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.